morning, everyone. What a beautiful, happy Sunday morning we have. We are in the book of John, and just to give you a little bit of preview, next week we have our 6 a.m. sunrise service, and I don't know why we made it so early. <laughs> I woke up this morning and I thought, oh, by this time I'm going to have to be showered, dressed, and I've already been in the sermon for half an hour. That's going to be interesting. But from that text, we're actually going to be looking at John 19 and John 20 next week. So we'll be right in that middle section of um, the resurrection and how the disciples responded to that. But this morning, we're still in the book of John, and we're still looking at that big theme that John has for us, that Jesus the Messiah is the overcoming God King, that he is the one who overcomes he is the one that is victorious on our behalf. He is the one who sets the standard of our relationship with God, and he does so as the Messiah, as the promised Christ and anointed one. He is fully God, and he represents himself as God and as king. And now, this morning, we're in chapter 4. And I don't have a lot of slides for you this morning because... I have no idea how far we're going to get through the text. We really need to get through verse 26 because it's one big story, but actually the entirety of, the, of John chapter 4 is one big connected story, and that goes through chapter or verse 54. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you'll know that I, there is no possible way I can get through 54 verses in one morning and you still be awake and patient and here. I mean, I could do it, but by 1 o'clock, you'd probably give up and leave. So I really have no idea how far we're going to get in chapter 4, but we are going to have an ending point, and that ending point is going to be, hopefully, it's very convicting. Let me just leave it at that. Very convicting. And in the entirety of the first part of uh, the book of John, we have been seeing time and time again, whether it's... Jesus and the purification rituals at the wedding feast or its discussions with Nicodemus or the discussions regarding John the Baptist and Jesus and his disciples, it's all kind of revolved around this idea that when Jesus came and showed the world who God is through his life and his work and his message, he demonstrated that all of these little systems that we tend to create that have rules and boundaries and we may think them to be good rules and boundaries, but they get in the way of a relationship with God, and Jesus came to destroy that. He came to destroy those legalistic ways of relating to God and judging one another how well you're doing your religion, how well they're doing their religion, and he wiped that idea completely out of our mind and starts again with the basics that God had established in the Old Testament. He wants your heart. He wants your heart first and foremost. He wants your heart to be alive towards him. He wants you to see that love and that love impact your heart from the Father. And he wants you to live in light of that, not a set of rules and regulations to begin your relationship with God. And so he constantly is fighting against that human nature that wants to have rules and boundaries. And then I judge myself based on how well I'm doing. And of course, I judge you based on how well you're not doing. And Jesus has come to destroy that system of religion, that system of philosophy, and that system of how we feel right about ourselves. And 
In John chapter 4, we have this almost hitting, hitting something central. Because so far, Jesus has been dealing with people who are clearly Israelites, clearly Jewish, clearly have a real strong connection to the law and to the Old Testament and to the sacrificial system. Uh, They were Jews upon Jews that he's been interacting with. And today he starts to interact with someone who's not like him. And in fact, he deals with a woman of Samaria. And I think it's important before we get really deep into the text is to answer that question, what is the deal with Samaria? Because we hear it a lot in the New Testament. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we have this particular story, which is really evident that there's something going on between people who consider themselves Jewish and people who consider themselves Samarians or Samaritans. They, there is this conflict between these two groups, and it's been there since 975 B.C. Now, I don't expect you to know what happened in 975 B.C., but there was a guy who died who was king, and his son kind of... Uh, had a heavy hand in ruling Israel, and the nation split in two. That person that died was Solomon. And so his son came to rule and reign. His name was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was not particularly a good guy, but uh, he did enough bad stuff that the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel in the north, broke away and erected their own king, who was uh, uh, Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was actually a servant in the household of Solomon. And so he kind of, I think, had the idea that he was close to Solomon, served Solomon, was one of his counselors, that he should be king and not uh, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, controlled Jerusalem and just a little bit of area surrounding Jerusalem, which would have been Judah's land and part of Benjamin's land, so two tribes. The rest of the tribes all found their new capital in the city of Samaria, and they set up their kingdom and rule there, and they were not godly either. In fact, immediately, because they couldn't go into Jerusalem to worship in the temple, they started erecting their own altars, and before you know it, every hilltop had an altar, and guess what came along with the altars? idols. And so northern Israel, or what was called in the Old Testament simply Israel, it degraded into absolute chaos and idolatry and false worship and children's sacrifices. They adopted some of the things that the Philistines were doing. They would sacrifice their children. They would, it was horrific. You would see no difference in the north of Israel than anywhere else in that land where there was no God. They had no sense of God's holiness, no sense of his compassion and mercy. They still called themselves Jews, but they worshipped foreign gods. And southern Israel, which was called Judah, they did no better. They worshipped false gods. They erected false temples. They still had Jerusalem as their main temple, and they still followed the rules and regulations that Moses had set up, and they added to it, 
and it became burdensome. And then God brought judgment upon the northern Israel. In 721 B.C., God sent the Assyrians from the east, conquered Israel, led them into captivity. And Judah rejoiced. Their enemy was gone. And Israel now, besides just worshiping false gods, started to intermarry with the Assyrians that came in and took them captive and ruled their land. And so now they're intermarrying with real, real pagans that had no understanding of God or Israel or the promises of Moses, Abraham, and Isaac. And they were, if it's possible, even worse at relating to God than they were a hundred years earlier. And God brought that judgment, and it was severe judgment upon Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north. Southern kingdom rejoiced. There was some times of revival, some times of excitement about God's law and the excitement about true religion and worship of God. And there were some kings that really were good at relating to God and calling the people to that obedience of a heart religion, not an obedience-based religion. But it didn't last very long. And eventually, in 568, God sent the Babylonian kingdom from the east to wipe out and bring captive Judah, the remnant of Israel, back to Babylonia and Babylon, excuse me. And they remained there for 70 years captive. They were released, came back, reestablished the nation of Israel. And by that time, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes to the north, which was centered in Samaria, kind of disbanded a bit and their territory shrunk a bit. But by the time of Christ, there was still this huge divide between these people in the north who took it upon themselves to say they were the true kingdom of God and they ruined the religion. They uh, erected false idols and worshiped them, false temples and sacrificed to them, including their own children. The southern kingdom, which felt very pure, because they had Israel, they, they had the, uh, the capital of Jerusalem in the temple, they were not going to compromise with those relatives to the north. In fact, those relatives to the north were considered dogs or half-breeds, and they called them that because they intermarried with the Assyrians when they invaded 700 years before. They knew how to hold a grudge. In fact, if you were a good Jewish person, and you were up at the Sea of Galilee and you need to make your way all the way south to Jerusalem, you would make sure that you took about a six-day bypass so you did not walk through Samaria. Because why would you want to walk through the land of infidels, half-breeds, and people that denied God's... that denied God. So they would make it purposeful to walk around Samaria so they never had to enter the land. They hated each other. They never came to each other's aid when they were being invaded. They were enemies. They were hated enemies. So that context is super important. 
not just for the parable of the Good Samaritan, but for our text this morning. Because in the first few verses, we have Jesus breaking the boundaries of hatred in a way that had never been seen before in the history of Israel for over 700 years. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he left the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was and he was headed north to the land of Nazareth where he's been before, the Sea of Galilee. And as he was making that journey, he had a choice. Do I take the long route the good route, the holy route, the route that a good Jew would take around Samaria, or do I take the fast track, go straight through Samaria, and just deal with the consequences afterwards? He decides in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. He had this innate desire. Call it God's calling. Call it his godness, knowing what was going to happen, but he made the conscious decision, instead of playing the part of what a good Jew would do, I'm going to play the part of what someone who was close to God would do. And I'm going to take every opportunity I can to reach a group of people that have been hated by my group of people. And I am going to take a step into their land, so he goes straight through Samaria. Now, granted, it's going to take six or seven days off of his journey, but I don't think he was thinking it's a time matter. He knew in this moment that he had an opportunity to fulfill God's purpose in this woman's life when he met her at the well. So in verse 5, he comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. See, this is a land filled with promise and history. This is the whole of Israel. But it was a land that was separated from the southern land because of their rebellion. And they had never met, had amends. They never had peace between their two divided lands. But this land that Jesus was walking through was a land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had walked through. A land of promise, a land of plenty, a land that the judges ruled, a land that David and Solomon ruled. But 700, more than 700 years had passed of hatred, division, anger, and frustration between the two. Jesus walks straight into it. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, depending on what time frame you're going to use. It could either be about noon or 4 o'clock in the afternoon because it doesn't tell us which time frame they're using. Are they using a Jewish time frame or a Roman time frame? They're a little bit different on telling time or when the hours were. So it was either midday or late in the afternoon, and he goes and sits down by the well that is well established in the Old Testament as a place of blessing, a place where God had met and provided sustenance to his people. But it was in the north. And Jesus was from the south. So he had to kind of endure or work through this assumed conflict that these two groups of people always had. 
So he sat there, just waiting at the well. And a woman from Samaria, verse 7, came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 8 tells us, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They weren't anywhere near. Jesus is sitting by the well either at noon or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. A woman comes up, which was her duty to draw water for herself, her family, and maybe her flocks. And as oftentimes was the case, this isn't going to be as strange as you might think that he's demanding that she serve him, but she would be the one with the bucket. See, they didn't leave the bucket in the well. And I know a lot of our imagery of wells, you have a bucket on a rope and you, you wheel it down and you wheel it back up. They would bring their own bucket. And the reason why they brought their own bucket is because they wanted to make sure they managed who was using that water. It was very precious, very important to their livelihood. So she would have brought her bucket. And so if he wanted a drink, he'd need someone that had a bucket. So he says, give me a glass of water. Give me some water. His disciples weren't there. He wasn't being lazy. He wasn't being demanding. He wasn't being a male chauvinist. That that's the, the woman's responsibility. She's the one that would have had the equipment that was possible for him to actually draw water and drink it. So it would have been, hey, can you use your bucket and bring me some water? That was the scenario. Well, the Samaritan woman, we're told in verse 9, said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John has this parenthetical statement in case we're not sure of the history of Samaria and Israel. And John says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She may not be shocked that there's someone sitting at the well, but she certainly is shocked that this guy is talking to her, asking her for help, for water, for a drink. And in her mind, it's obvious this guy is not from town. This guy's accent, maybe the way he looked, maybe the way he dressed, was a clue immediately to her, this is a Jew. Now, surprise, surprise, she's also Jewish, but she doesn't identify as a Jew. She's had over 700 years of division, and the Jews saying, you're not really Jews, you're intermarrying, you're half-breeds, you're dogs, you're vomit to us, we're not dealing with you. And she picks up that this guy is out of place. He's not supposed to be there. In fact, he's an enemy. We hate each other. And he's asking for a favor? How can that be? How can an enemy ask a favor as if it's just, hey, hand me a glass of water? I know that We ourselves have enemies. And I'm not talking about east side versus south side football rivalries type of enemies. I'm talking about people who hate you. And maybe there are people that you hate. I would find it very hard in this day and age uh, to walk through certain portions of this world 
and rely upon that group of people for a drink, for sustenance. It'd be really hard for me to walk through Somalia and try to befriend them and love them and rely on them. I think it'd be hard to walk through Russia or China right now and do the same. I'll be honest, I think it'd be hard for me to walk through Washington, D.C. and uh, find a friend. Might be hard for me to walk through Denver and find a friend. There's probably parts of this town where it'd be noticeable that Tim is walking through their village, their neighborhood. And the response is, what is he doing here? You're out of place. This isn't your neighborhood. This isn't your city. This isn't your country. You're not part of our people. And we have such strong divisions, even as Americans, that we view other Americans as enemies to our ideal of what America is. To the point that we will avoid them, we will make fun of them, we will call them names, and we will deny that they are like us. There's been times in our nation where it's been separated north and south from divisions that's led to hatred and war. So what's happening in Samaria and Israel is not unique to their history. We share that same hatred, division, and warlike feelings towards others. And I'm not trying to make any political statement about the value of why we stand up for what we stand up for and fight against those who are against our principles as a nation. But in Samaria, and the Jews, this war had go on, gone on so long, the division was so deep-rooted that I don't even think they even remembered what they were fighting about, why they were so divided, why I couldn't walk the shortcut, why I had to take the long way around, why we don't reunite. I think that division was so strong and so ingrained that you didn't even have to teach it to your children because that's just how you lived and they knew, I don't go to Samaria. I don't go to Israel. And that division was strong. And it had divided the land for over 700 years with no sign that it would ever be restored. And even when Rome came in, they did not try to restore Samaria and the rest of Israel. It was its own little separate spot and never messed with. In fact, even the Samaritans stopped calling themselves Jews and just called themselves Samaritans. So even though their history and the land that they were living in was a land of promise, they ignored the promise, denied it, and fought against being identified with that promise. There was tremendous hatred. Jesus has a lot to say about hatred hating enemies. And in fact, what he does in the rest of John chapter 4 really demonstrates 
his love for enemies, his compassion for enemies, his desire to bring redemption to his enemies, that they too would have a relationship with God that would be flourishing. There was a hard moment on 9-11 where there was a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety and a lot of that fear and anxiety was really placed upon the Muslim. And I think our gut response at that moment is to declare them as enemies so that we are justified in how we respond and protect ourselves. And I remember a Wednesday night prayer meeting at a church and I remember this was very raw. It had happened just weeks ago. And we're, we're together praying, and um, the conversations were about fear, uncertainty. How are we going to get them? How are we going to protect ourselves um, type of thing? And I opened up to Luke chapter 6, and I read that. And immediately... All the fear, all the anger, all the hatred, and all the uncertainty that we were feeling at that moment disappeared. And so there may be somebody in your life that you hate. Now, you're not going to call it hate because, you know, we're Christians, so we're going to call it, I dislike them, or I strongly dislike them, or I don't even know who they are. I just ignore them. However you want to put your Christianized kind of feeling into it, there are people that you purposefully, purposefully ignore or simply just reject and keep at arm's length. And when push comes to shove, if you saw them on the side of the road needing help, you would laugh and go, <laughs> they got what they deserved. Good for them. Glad they're tasting their own medicine right now. And we have all sorts of ways of justifying that. That mentality goes away today. We no longer are free to live with that hate and anger towards someone or some group of people. Because what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 was not just true for when Jesus said it. It was not just true that Wednesday evening when I opened up to it and read it. It's true for us today. He says in John chapter 6, starting in verse 27, and this is kind of our take-home. This is what we're going to apply from the text. And I know we haven't been in John chapter 4 very long, but we've seen and we've established that there is a war of principles and a war of people between Israel and Samaria. How does Jesus respond? He goes there and he starts to interact with this woman. And we're going to see that interaction as we go through chapter 4. But we get hit right away that there is division among these two groups of people. And when there is division among two groups of people, Jesus says, this is how we handle it. It says in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs of you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that on others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. There's a lot there. I understand that. And in the last few minutes of this message, I'm not going to be able to address everything that's coming out of there. But what really is coming out of there is how we view and treat our enemies. How do we view and treat them? The principle that Jesus lays out is love. Love and mercy and kindness and doing not what is expected. So you're expected to hate them. You're expected to reject them and laugh at them and ignore them and put them down and beat them into submission. That's what the world expects. But to the believer, in fact, this is how God describes this. He says, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. When you demonstrate love towards your enemies, to those who hate you and ridicule and ignore you and hurt you, when you show them love, that is demonstrating you are one of the children of the Most High that you are one of his children, that you are redeemed and saved, that this religion has done something in you to change you. Not to respond that the way the world responds, but to respond the way that God responds. Because God is merciful, both to the wicked and to the evil. He shows them kindness and mercy, and we're to example that. And the biggest kindness and mercy you've ever experienced has been from God to love you and redeem you and save you and forgive you. While you were yet an enemy of his, he sent his son to die and redeem you and grant you mercy and forgiveness. Even when you ignored him, even when you hated him, he loved you. And that is how we are to treat our enemies. And you're going to say, Tim, you do not know what this person did to me. You don't know what he did to me, she did to me, they did to me. You have no idea how much hurt and pain that caused. You have no idea how that has ruined me and how that memory of that has stuck with me to this day, how it influences my decisions, how it makes me keep people at arm's length. And you're right, I don't know the particulars of why you have an enemy the way you do. 
But I can tell you, it doesn't matter how painful it was, how long it was, how agonizing it was, and how depressing it was. None of that matters. What matters is how are you today demonstrating love towards them? That doesn't mean you have to, you know, go to each other's birthday parties and you walk hand in hand down the street and, you know, you let bygones be bygones and there's no, uh, um, you know, you're just buddies now. But hatred in your heart does have to stop. And God gives us a way, and it's a supernatural way. It says, love them like I have loved you. You don't have to manufacture love. You don't have to make up feelings. You don't have to deny the pain. But what you have to do is you have to put Christ first in that relationship and say, I'm going to love you as hard as it is because Christ has loved me mercifully and without limit, so I am going to demonstrate love to them. And that might just mean you go a day without wanting them to die. Maybe that's the start. Okay, I no longer want them to die right now. Maybe later, but right now I'm going to, no, it's okay if they live. Maybe that's the start of how you start demonstrating love. But you are called to love them. You are called to love your enemies. It doesn't matter who that enemy is. You are called to love them. And you, it's hard. But it's not your love that you have to love them with. It's the love that Christ has demonstrated to you. You don't do it in your own power or your own time. You do it with him. And if you're finding it hard to love that enemy, all you have to do is look at Christ's love for you. Just look at that. Look at how often he forgives you. Look at how often he accepts you. Look at how he's not taken you out of his family and rejected you. He keeps you at his table of feasting because he so loves you. And if you ever think that his love will fail you, all you have to do is look at this table. All you have to do is look at the sacrifice that Christ put himself through for your sin. And that should motivate you to love deeper and stronger and more. Because his love for you has no bounds. Your love for your enemy should have no bounds. And this table helps remind us of that very fact that his love cost him something. His love cost him his son. So as our elders come forward, we're going to set aside the, the bread and the cup this morning, and you're going to remain seated, and it's going to be handed out to you. And then uh, all together, we're going to take part of both the bread and the cup. So as they come forward, let me just pray. Our Father, our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord, hate is a very strong emotion. And it can get the best of us, even on our best days. Help us, Father, every time that we start having feelings and emotions of hate towards someone, that we are quickly reminded of the taste and feel of this bread and of this cup, that we might be reminded of your love for us. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.